Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Ben Weingarten, filling in for Buck Sexton. And I want to start by thanking Buck for the opportunity to pinch it and fill his shoes in the spirit of this almost opening day. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a senior contributor at The Federalist, where I co-host its media criticism show, Bad News. We call it the media criticism show that the right deserves. And the left deserves that criticism richly, too. On that show, we discuss the media's most laughable behavior, like asking what Joe Biden's favorite ice cream flavor is or questions like this. Thanks so much, Mr. President. Um, you've said over and over again that immigrants shouldn't come to this country right now. This isn't the time to come. That message is not being received. Instead, the perception of you that got you elected as a moral, decent man is the reason why a lot of immigrants are coming to this country and entrusting you with unaccompanied minors. That was, of course, the fearless Yamish Alcindor. Your taxpayer dollars at work. She is a publicly funded journalist. But while the media distracts with bread and circuses, it also does something far more significant. It injects narratives, runs information operations like Russiagate, and even shifts the Overton window, like it did later in Biden's sole stage-managed press conference, much bandied about weeks into his presidency, weeks after anyone else did their first press conference, where he had a little Facebook page cheat sheet to go through his pre-prepared, probably, questions. The media pressed him to nuke the filibuster during that press conference, as if it was the only reasonable, moderate position to take. They set the narrative. The media serves as the public relations arm of our so-called elites, the highly credentialed, morally superior betters who call the shots across every part of our society. It helps its elite friends mold opinion so the elites can increase their power. We are left with an oligarchy, the exact system the founders swore off and fought to break ourselves away from. The American Republic that they helped build is based on a few simple principles, central of which is the consent of the governed. We give our consent to be governed by electing representatives, yet increasingly today we find ourselves ruled, not represented. We vote, but our so-called leaders usurp all kinds of powers we never entrusted them with. They violate our liberty, perpetrate injustice, and they punt on the very things we actually want them to represent us on, to an army of unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats and judges. Worse, they're joined in shoving this agenda down our throats increasingly by voluntary colluders, to use that popular word today. Big business, woke capital, corporate media, the schools, and all of the other commanding heights of our society are in on the ruling class's fun. That is our ruling class. The gap between our ruling class and we the people, unfortunate enough to be ruled by it, is as large as it's ever been. How is the ruling class a small, extreme minority, a fringe, responding to a large, mainstream majority, that is, deplorable Americans and sane, traditional independents and Democrats? Well, it's not heeding the concerns of the tens of millions of people who collectively gave the ruling class the finger by voting for Donald Trump twice. It's not trying to bridge the gap with the half the country that remains unwoke and unapologetically patriotic. Instead, it's doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on its efforts to dominate us, right down to controlling the ultimate means by which we consent to being governed, not ruled, our votes. It's no coincidence that in the last Congress and this one, the first bill out of the Democrat-controlled House was H.R. 1, the dishonestly named for the People Act. Of course, it's really the For the Politicians Act. It passed out of the House without a single Republican vote, and its companion bill, S-1, is currently pending in the Senate. 
What this legislation would do is take all of the extraordinary election integrity threatening measures of the 2020 election. Those include, for example, mass mail-in voting, how could you forget, ballot harvesting, lax identity verification standards, and an endless election season rather than a singular election day, and make all of it universal and permanent. The cherry on top is that the bill threatens federalism by taking control of elections almost completely out of the hands of the states. The further away we move from a system where we vote in person, having shown the same ID that we use for a million other less important things in our daily lives on a single election day, a system that we control through our state representatives, the closer we move to a banana republic system that will reward fraud and corruption and entrench in power the fraudulent and corrupt. And by the way, honest Democrats used to admit that these sorts of ballot reform measures and the like invited corruption. The New York Times talked about it for literally the last two decades. Jimmy Carter signed onto a bipartisan commission report in 2005, certifying it as well. Now he's backtracked, just like all the rest of the Democrats. You know they don't have a real argument here for moving away from our traditional election system because they have to hide behind their favorite argument when you debate them on it. What do they do? Of course, they call you a racist and a bigot for daring to protect lawful votes from fraudulent votes that would dilute those lawful votes disenfranchising lawful voters in the process. Here's Joe Biden on the whole issue. The Republican voters I know find this despicable. Republican voters, the folks out in the, outside this White House, I'm not talking about the, the elected officials, I'm talking about voters, voters. And so I'm convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it is the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. Yeah. Well, let's not forget, by the way, that as he references the Jim Crow relic, it's the Democrat Party that was the party of Jim Crow in the South. But that's an inconvenient narrative, so let's not even go there. Of course, the administration supports H.R. 1 and S. 1 and the like. They have their own executive order, much in line with these bills. Let's say they fail, even if they fail. Democrats have another trick up their sleeve if the voters just won't go along with their agenda. The Nancy Pelosi-led House is seeking to unseat newly elected Republican Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks from Iowa's 2nd District. Maybe you haven't heard of it because the media was focused on Oprah's interview with the royal family. She won her race by a minuscule six-vote margin, that is Congresswoman Miller-Meeks, and her victory held through a recount and was certified by the state of Iowa. But that's not good enough for tin pot dictator Nancy Pelosi. Well, and we want to be fair. Now, if I wanted to be unfair, I wouldn't have seated the, Dem the Republican from Iowa because that was my right on the opening day. I would have just said, you're not seated. And that would have been my right as speaker to do. Nancy Pelosi is nothing if not fair. The Democrats' effort to steal this election, and that is what they are doing, is based in part on Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, because Democrats love to invoke the Constitution when it suits them and trash it when it doesn't. That article says, and I quote, each house shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members. Got that? In Nancy Pelosi's reading, your consent doesn't matter. Only hers does. She and the Congress get to determine who sits in Congress not we the people. So while Democrats threaten election integrity and are trying to steal an election, 
you still can't dare raise a word about any of the sketchy things that transpired during the 2020 presidential election. The very things that would make you question the wisdom of H.R. 1 and scream bloody murder over the hypocrisy of Democrats trying to steal a seat. The ruling classers, classes enforcers in big tech have made sure you are muzzled. My colleagues at the Claremont Institute's The American Mind website found out that the censorship over the 2020 election is ongoing when last week they tried to publish a podcast on YouTube that my company helped script and produce, only for the Google-owned platform to remove it. Ironically, or perhaps not, the MIDI audio documentary titled The Ruling Class Strikes Back chronicled the infinite ways in which our ruling class worked relentlessly during 2020 to marginalize, silence, and rout dissenters from their rule. Their tactics, of course, included suppressing news like the Hunter Biden story, although maybe they helped out, ironically, with that one, information, and opinion the ruling class disapproved of. One portion of the podcast scrutinized the dubious aspects of the 2020 election. That is, it touched on what is now a third rail. In a generic email, YouTube reminded us that it is, quote, a safe space for all. Well, unless you're a wrong thinker. By questioning aspects of the 2020 election, the podcast apparently violated that safe space. Without pointing to precisely how it did so, the social media platform added that, quote, content that advances false claims that widespread fraud, errors, or glitches changed the outcome of the U.S. 2020 presidential election is not allowed on YouTube. Never mind that the podcast made no such claim. What it did do was talk about something else you're not allowed to talk about. It questioned the legitimacy of the lawfare that preceded the election, which is now likely to be enshrined if we pass an HR1 and an S1. It highlighted the curious events that took place on and after election night, and it chronicled the statistical anomalies, anecdotal, and more robust evidence pointing to the fact that the election simply deserves scrutiny. The podcast was not trying to relitigate the 2020 presidential election, just like we're not trying to relitigate it right now. But it put it in context of a series of major related events, a broader theme, including the first impeachment effort, the coronavirus crisis, and the 1619 riots, all of which just happened to result in more power for our ruling class. They exploited these crises. And of course, they did everything they could to make sure that the election result trended right. Nevertheless, any skepticism is now banned. I guess it makes sense that skepticism is now banned. Why would they want to be called on their efforts? You know, Justice Clarence Thomas noted in the Citizens United case, which you can't speak of, that core political speech is the, quote, primary object of First Amendment protection, unquote. What could be more core to political speech than talking about the election process? Well, this doesn't matter to our ruling class. The official narrative that they have to put forth is that the first mass mail-in election in history was uniquely above board. It must not be challenged. Big tech will argue you're inciting people to violence if you dare cast doubt on the soundness of the election. You might start an insurrection at your state house. You are Jim Eagle as well, should you advocate for legislation that would dare bar the most suspicious and obviously potentially corrupt 2020 election processes and practices. Big tech and the ruling class it represents and is a part of undermines confidence in our elections by censoring criticism of them. That's because sound elections can withstand scrutiny. If you wanted to make people suspicious about election processes, you couldn't find a better way to do it than censoring speech about them. Healthy and free societies welcome robust debate, most importantly, most critically, about contentious issues. 
A nation that suppresses discourse ceases to have debate. And when disputes cannot be resolved in words, tragically, the odds increase people may resort to actions. This is how civil societies devolve and decline into banana republics. Our ruling class would seem to be comfortable with this trajectory. It seeks to set the terms of the increasingly limited debates we're allowed to have. It controls the platforms through which the narrow array of ruling class approved arguments are disseminated. It determines who gets canceled and who is spared. In a word, it plays God. It seeks to rule. It can't tolerate dissent because it can't tolerate challenges to its power and privilege. That's why it hated Donald Trump. That's why it needs to make sure that elections normally trend in the right direction from the ruling class's perspective. More broadly, it seeks a monopoly on the narrative so it has a monopoly on power. We must not only hold the line in the face of this onslaught, we must do everything we can to break that monopoly for God, family, and country. All right, after the break, we'll have more on the onslaught of the American ruling class with the CEO of American Majority, Ned Ryan. Stay with us. Welcome back. Ben Weingarten filling in here for Buck Sexton. As we discussed earlier, America is increasingly finding itself at the mercy of a ruling class, an unholy but holier-than-thou alliance of progressive legislators, the legacy media, and woke corporate interests. So, how do we break the ruling class's monopoly? Joining me now to discuss this further is the CEO of American Majority, an exceptional writer and thinker, Ned Ryan. Ned, thanks so much for coming on the program. Yeah, no, good to be with you, Ben. So, Ned, as I mentioned, we're facing an onslaught right now, and it starts with the first bills in the House and Senate, the deceptively named For the People Act, which, of course, would enshrine all of the election integrity, eroding measures of the 2020 election, and also challenge federalism to boot. So the question is this. This legislation is the whole ballgame. How do you see, ultimately, do you see Senate Republicans fighting this? And what should our takeaway be from the fact that this is the very first bill that comes out of this new Congress? No, I I think you make a point. It's a very Orwellian title for the People Act, but I, in fact, call it uh, codifying corruption. I mean, let's not forget, this was Nancy Pelosi's H.R. 1 in the last session of Congress. Although that version was only 550 pages, they've learned a little bit after the 2020 elections, added another 250 pages to this edition of it. But it is nothing less, Ben, than, than the codifying of corruption that we saw last uh, last election in the, in the 2020 presidential election, in which ballot harvesting becomes legal. They turn election day into election week. States now have to accept ballots 10 days after election. Uh, it really is. It's nothing less than if you were to actually encapsulate in one sense, it's nothing less than taking away the right of self-governance from the American people because Democrats have decided they're tired of being told no, not only by Republicans, but by the voters as well. And so really, if you want to look at an overarching theme, they really want to take all 50 states, California, and apply it to all 50 states. So that's one party rule. And they realize if they can somehow get this passed, and I got to tell you, not terribly optimistic when your backstop are Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the Senate to make sure they don't go nuclear, remove the legislative filibuster to shove this down their throats. Uh, it's a troubling time that we're in because if we don't win this, uh, if we don't somehow manage to hold them off on this bill, it's going to be an ugly scenario. Obviously, it's going to go to the states and a lot of attorney, state attorney generals, Republicans are going to fight it. But still, the fact that it might pass the Senate is troubling, uh, to say the least. 
Yeah, and of course, if they have to nuke the filibuster in order to achieve it, then the floodgates are going to open on a whole raft of disastrous legislation. Okay. And I think it seems that Democrats do recognize the potential political suicide they could be engaged in there, but they've engaged in suicide missions before, and they still right. find ways to get back into power. One of the ways that they're trying to do it right now, and it's amazing how brazen this is, is in trying to unseat a duly elected Republican, as I mentioned in the opening, Marionette Miller-Meeks, from Iowa too. What do you make of this gambit from Nancy Pelosi? Is this an attempt to telegraph and create the precedent for ultimately unseating anyone Democrats don't like if they have a majority in the House? Yeah, no, I mean, this is a completely demented move going back to where we've decided. A lot of people, though, have decided that, that, that democracy is inconvenient in D.C. They've just decided, and not only Democrats, by the way, Republicans, are ruling class. The ruling class is not just Democrats. It's not just the corporate media. It's not just big tech. There are certain Republicans that obviously buy into this concept that uh, they're part of a ruling class. They don't. They like the status quo, uh, and they were very upset that Donald Trump somehow came in and kicked over the table and, and upended it all. So I think it is troubling that Nancy Pelosi, this this lady, was sworn in. Again, it was a very narrow vote. Six six votes, I think, was the winning margin. But still, she was sworn in. She is a official sitting member of the U.S. House, and now they're deciding. Because of the Biden administration, obviously a couple of the members of that Democratic House caucus have gone into that administration. Their margins are shrinking and shrinking. And so they're trying to figure out how do we find another vote? I mean, this is troubling behavior in which they are overturning the will of the American people, specifically the voters in Iowa. And I know it was close, but at the same time, this was a certified election. Uh, she was sworn in. And it is troubling to see Nancy Pelosi try and get away with this. And of course, you know, the corporate media bootlickers. Uh, are, of course, bolstering her efforts and not really covering it and, and not even questioning this. But I want to go back to something really quick on this whole thing with H.R. 1 and codifying the, the corruption. When you realize what is at stake, again, you, you alluded to this, it's not just H.R. 1, right? It's not political power for generations and, and generations. It's Green New Deal, right? It's the Equality Act. It's all of these things to re-engineer America into the regressive socialist vision. I mean, that's really what's at stake. And the linchpin is this H.R. 1. Boy, I got to tell you, Republicans have better toe the line. I, I certainly hope that Joe Manchin, especially in Kirsten Cinema, obviously toe the line and say we're not going to upend uh, the, the filibuster, which, by the way, and I, I know that people have discussed this. Barack Obama didn't find this racist, the legislative filibuster, when he was in the Senate. Uh, but it is amazing to see how far the Democratic Party has come over the last 15 years. Now the filibuster is a racist relic of Jim Crow, which is, of course, a falsehood. But also, I want to remind people, back in 2005, Jimmy Carter's bipartisan commission actually advocated photo ID. And now the left, the Democrats, are saying that that is a tool of voter suppression. This is how far we've come in 15 years. And I really think what's at the heart of it, Ben, they got a real scare in 2016, obviously, when the great outsider was elected and upended a lot of things and actually didn't buy the premise of the administrative state. And now they're realizing we can't let that happen again. We've got to fortify these elections. That infamous quote out of that Time Magazine article back in February, because dear God, those dirty little peasants might not do what's best for them, i.e. for the ruling class, and might actually elect another outsider in 2024. We better make sure that never happens again. But this is, this is troubling that HR1 is such a linchpin for their socialist agenda for America. And it kind of gives me a little bit of hope, Ben. This is why Joe Manchin will not actually vote to remove the legislative filibuster because he realizes if he does that, they will ram through the Green New Deal, which, of course, is devastating for his home state of West Virginia. 
Yeah, let's hope that his political self-interest overrides whatever the Biden administration is using to try to ultimately push him, including, of course, a That's plum right. job for his wife. And I think it's also worth noting that every single time they raise this whole Jim Crow relic concept with a filibuster, well, the Democrat Party itself is a Jim Crow relic, so maybe it should abolish itself. And I think we should throw that <laughs> yes. back in their face every single time. That's and right. You know, this is a good segue. One, an operating principle that I believe Republicans should apply, and I suspect you would agree, is that they should always ask themselves the question when faced with a political challenge. What would Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer do if they were in your shoes? And until Democrats have to make that calculation, oh my gosh, Republicans might actually fight fire with fire, they are going to continue to ram their agenda down our throats and engage in all sorts of er erratic, reckless, disastrous acts because ultimately they care about power. So. That leads to That's a question. Right. I, when I look at the Senate, for example, there may be five rock-ribbed conservatives who on most issues are going to go in line with where the vast majority of Republicans are and really where the Trump agenda was. How do we make mm -hmm. our representatives actually represent us and not the donor class besides primarying a whole bunch of them? Well, I, you, you allude to the most powerful weapon is to primary them. And obviously, we've got a great opportunity in 2022. There's a lot of open seats, you know, with Republicans retiring, whether it's in Ohio and Pennsylvania, Alabama. I think we've got pickup opportunities, albeit tough ones uh, in Arizona and Georgia. But I've told Trump, I, I had a meeting with him about a month ago in which I said, this is your chance in these open Senate races and these challenging races to imprint your America first agenda on the Republican Party, obviously in the Republican House primaries as well, especially the 10 people that voted to impeach you. This is your chance to actually imprint that uh, America first on the Republican Party. It's in primaries because, Ben, I always say this at American Majority Trainings, a party is what people say it is. And the people who say what it is are those that win primaries, show up at conventions and run for precinct chair. And the only way that we will actually get elected officials to be more to be scared of us more than the donor class is to actually have enforcement at the primary level, uh, at the convention level, at the precinct level to make the party, the Republican Party, a creature of our own creation. We haven't done the work that's necessary to actually do that. And quite frankly, they're not afraid of us because we haven't done the work necessary to make them afraid of us. And that's one of the things I'm really trying to encourage people over the next 18 months. Get it to the point where you've got a political machine that really strikes fear into uh, these elected officials' hearts, more so than, say, House leadership or Senate leadership or the corporate donor class. And until we get to that point, I think we're still going to see some more disappointment in D.C. They have to be more afraid of us than anything else, and they're not. Ned, appreciate all the great work you do in the trenches, vital work in this political war that we're in. And I urge everyone watching to read everything you can from Ned over at American Greatness and elsewhere. Thanks so much for coming on the program and joining us tonight. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Well, the U.S. military was once the most reliably nonpartisan institution in America, one of the few that people still trust. But the past few weeks have shown us that even the men and women in uniform aren't immune to the scourge of wokeness. Kyle Scheidler of the Center for Security Policy joins us when we come back. In just the last week, we've seen wokeism in our military accelerating, just like it's accelerating in every aspect of our society. U.S. Special Operations Command hired a new Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Let's stop for a second. Why does U.S. Special Operations and Command have this position in the first place? His name is Richard Torres Estrada. And as you can see on screen, if you want to know who Mr. Torres Estrada is and where he stands, you need look no further than his Facebook page, where in June of last year, he compared President Trump to who else? Adolf Hitler. 
This is the man bringing unity and civility to our armed forces. Unfortunately, the appointment of Torres Estrada isn't an isolated incident of wokeness infecting the U.S. military. This week, it was reported that the Pentagon is targeting, quote, right-wing extremism, unquote, within its ranks. According to Politico, it's all part of an effort to crack down on extremists who may be lurking inside the military after dozens of ex-service members were arrested for their roles in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol to stop the certification of the presidential election. Just a little bit of editorializing there. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Senior Analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy, Kyle Scheidower. Kyle, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Ben. So let's start first with the immediate problem, which is what are the costs to our national security of wokeism being imposed throughout its ranks? How does it actually impact the safety and security, the life and limb of American citizens? Sure. Well, to begin with, anytime your military is busy engaged in a stand down to talk about the, the latest political foibles uh, that are being forced upon them, uh, by the bureaucracy and by the Biden administration, what they're not doing is preparing to win wars. And you know, we still are engaged around the around the globe. We've got uh, increasing tension with the Chinese uh, over Taiwan. There's a lot of things that the military needs to be doing right now, uh, a lot more than they need to be uh, sitting around a conference room and talking about how various memes make them feel. And that's where that's where we're at today. At the same time, we see the accelerating wokeification of the military, maybe the last bastion of at least conservative, that is traditional principles and a place where you actually need some order and, and, and actually following along in the ranks. We also see that there's an effort by the U.S. government, whole of government effort that's building right now under the Biden administration to develop a domestic war on quote unquote violent extremism. You've written about the fact that this ha is sort of the ancillary of the former war on violent extremism, which should have been targeting Islamists, but spread to targeting anyone that the, the U.S. government deemed extremist. Talk a little bit about the trajectory from CVE, countering violent extremism, to this new war on domestic violent extremism. Sure. So for the past 20 years, we've been fighting a war against self-identified uh, jihadists uh, and the one thing that the government across uh, the spectrum from law enforcement to intelligence to the military was forbidden to do was identify them as jihadists, to identify them as uh, individuals whose uh, religious predilections led them to engage in violent terrorism. That was something that was simply uh, not allowed. And what you could do was speak in very vague terms about extremists and extremism. The problem with this is twofold. Uh, once you use uh, extremism in this way, you sort of uh, limit uh, the actual threat, you know, and you start to see, and we saw many, many media pieces this way, where they were describing actual violent terrorists as simply kids with bad ideas, kids who got a little extreme. On the other hand, it creates great political power for whoever gets to decide what the definition of extremist is and who the extremists are. And what we are seeing now is the uh, efforts by the uh, bureaucracy and by the Biden administration to shift that definition of what is extremist, how it is defined, and who consists of extremists, uh, and point it away from the threats that we are uh, facing 
and towards uh, really mainstream America. Yeah, towards the tens of millions of deplorables and their friends and colleagues and neighbors. And one of the ways you see this is in this really duplicitous threat assessment put out a declassified version of which, probably a summary version of which, was put out by the Director of National Intelligence, and you broke this down in a, in a really trenchant analysis. Speak a little bit to what the takeaways are for the American people from this threat assessment on so-called right-wing extremism. Sure. So they did a threat assessment on what they called domestic violent extremism. Uh, and this came out of the office for the uh, d uh, director of national intelligence, who's responsible for our entire uh, internet uh, intelligence community uh, product. And they essentially said uh, the only threats is this domestic violent extremism, which did not include in any way uh, a jihadist threat or any foreign threat, uh, which they in the past have. They they sort of. Um, squeeze jihadists into this category of homegrown violent extremism. And they include that as sort of uh, in, 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 this, in the vein of, of domestic violent extremism. And now that is gone. The only threat now uh, we're seeing are what they define as uh, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, which uh, they broadly define as uh, people motivated by a bias against minority populations. Uh, which would which would, by the way, exclude any uh, minority uh, supremacist or violence, uh, say, for example, from uh, black identity extremist groups against uh, Jews, which is something that we've seen quite a bit, for example, in New York City. so you're 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 taking this category and defining it broadly, but then inside that category, you're including only one potential threat, and you're ignoring all others. Yeah, the real threat to our ruling class apparently are patriotic, God-fearing, unwoke Americans. And unfortunately, we're having the very powers that were misused, abused, and focused on the wrong people that is in that global war on terror now potentially being turned on half of our country. Kyle, keep up the great work exposing this, and thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Ben. Well, related to this entire theme is the fact that Democrats have framed the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol as a dire threat to American democracy, even though they plan on eroding our democracy. But the truth is far less dramatic. We'll have more on that with senior contributor to American Greatness, Julie Kelly, up next. Welcome back to Hold the Line with Buck Sexton. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck. Well, next week will mark three months since the Capitol riot shocked the nation. And if you can remember, the left and the mainstream media, but I repeat myself, wasted no time writing the narrative that this was an armed insurrection aimed at the overthrow of the republic. U.S. senators said that this was the next 9-11. This was Pearl Harbor. But now we're learning that that narrative, which I believe incidentally was in part foisted on us to stop us from talking about what actually happened in the election, has completely fallen apart as many of the Capitol rioters are unlikely to even serve any jail time. So what's changed? Let's bring in someone who's been following this story from the very beginning, Julie Kelly. She's the senior contributor of American Greatness and author of the book, Disloyal Opposition, the ultimate critique of the Never Trump movement. Julie, you've been doggedly covering the Capitol riot from the start. What have you found in pouring over the cases that the Justice Department is prosecuting or not right now? 
Um, thank you, Ben, for having me on. I think that that Politico headline is something that uh, we have been covering at American Greatness for several weeks, diving into these various indictments. Almost 300 people have been arrested so far. Uh, nothing rises to the level of insurrection or sedition, which the Justice Department promised that that was going to be charges forthcoming. So all of these narratives have fallen apart from the armed insurrection. No one was charged with possessing or using a firearm in the Capitol that day um, to the death of Officer Sicknick, which we now know was a lie from the very beginning based on an account published uh, in the New York Times. And so now the media is catching up with what an egregious overreach this has been by the Justice Department. You're going to have a lot of unhappy people. Uh, not only are charges going to be dropped, but no sedition insurrection type cases will be able to be brought forward. And judges actually are starting to fight back on uh, a lot of what the Justice Department has been presenting to the courts. It's really amazing. If they can't make anything stick in so many of these cases, the cases must really be thin, given all the resources that have been put into these investigations. And it sort of in some ways seems to parallel some of the Russiagate-related prosecutions as well. Not that nothing happened in this case, because obviously what happened at the Capitol was shameful. But it seems, once again, like there's a narrative in search of actual evidence to justify what was put forth. And it's just not there. And you've, you've termed this essentially a political prosecution. We're witnessing essentially show trials where the process is the punishment. Do you think that this is the model for what's coming under a war on domestic violent extremism that is a war on wrong thinkers in this country? That's a great point. Uh, I think you're spot on there, Ben. We see that the Department of Homeland Security, the Defense Department, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, who used to be John Brennan's top deputy at Obama's uh, CIA, obviously she learned well how to politicize intelligence. And so the idea that these people are domestic violent extremists, and in Avril Haines's report, I know you saw this, they had a depiction, a graphic of the Capitol building underneath or above this category called domestic violent extremists. Now, to your point, there are several people have been charged with vandalism, with stealing property, of course, with assaulting police officers, but the overwhelming number have been charged initially with misdemeanors and then had this enhancement uh, charge called obstruction of an official proceeding, which I write about over 130 people have been charged with that. That brings a felony count to mostly misdemeanor cases. And it'll be interesting to see in that political report today, they actually point out how dangerous pursuing that charge will be in terms of a chilling effect on future political protests. Because as you know, you know, demonstrating when Congress is in session or State of the Union or certainly Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, that was all fine. But if you start convicting people of that based on what happened January 6th, it is going to really criminalize political dissent, not just for Trump voters, but of course, the other side too. Just to really crystallize the hypocrisy here, and it is amazing to witness in real time, given the 1619 riots that we saw during last summer, media members are targeting crowdfunding sites now who are, where people are seeking to raise funds to cover their legal expenses, those who are being prosecuted in connection with the Capitol riots. Media members are attacking the crowdfunding vehicles so they can't raise funds there. But meanwhile, the current vice president of the United States infamously was out there supporting bail for 1619 riot protesters. It is really just perversion on perversion that we're witnessing here. 
Let's jump to another perversion, and you covered this from the start, and you must feel so vindicated, although there's really no joy in what's transpired in being right as we've self-immolated over it. It was very obvious from the start of the coronavirus crisis, and you pointed this out, and I pointed this out, and a few others did as well, that the so-called experts were using garbage in, garbage out models to justify a solution that had never been tested before, nor proven, but which the Chinese Communist Party encouraged, of locking down everything. And it was also obvious that it acutely affected certain segments of society, the elderly, the overweight, and those with certain other conditions as well. But you stood against a tidal wave of abuse for challenging the establishment's coronavirus policies in real time. It hasn't been memory hold yet at American Greatness and elsewhere, and you've been vindicated. So a year on now, what are your reflections on what has transpired? Well, thank you for that. And thank you for also being with all the handful of us at the beginning who recognized exactly what this was all about, uh, where this trajectory was going. But look, Ben, I couldn't even imagine now where we would be. I have a piece up today at American Greatness basically accusing Anthony Fauci of suggesting child abuse, which is what he did in an interview over the weekend, where he is still insisting that children uh, wear masks even when they are interacting with other children. How unhealthy, what sort of psychological and physical damage is this man going to inflict, not just on adults, but on our children too? Uh, It will be years before we even fully grasp what his horrific, inhumane uh, counsel has done to this country, to individuals, to families, to businesses. And yet he just appears on all these shows, strutting, smiling, grinning for the camera. Um, He's just a celebrity. He hasn't shown one ounce of remorse for all the terrible advice that he's given what he's done to this country. So to your point, it's kind of hard to take a victory lap, even though we have been vindicated for the abuse that we took early on. But it was definitely a fight worth uh, worth taking. And now we see the next step, this forced vaccine passport and continued masking, continued lockdowns. Um, you know, this is not going away anytime soon. But I do think then that uh, more people are waking up to exactly what Anthony Fauci is all about. Uh, and so to that extent, I guess it's a good thing. Hopefully we'll see his star start to fade a little bit uh, moving forward. I appreciate you ending with that silver lining, Julie. This has been Julie Kelly, senior contributor at American Greatness. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Ben. And that was a great segue into our quick hit segment, where we asked the question, are vaccine passports in America's future? Not if Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has anything to say about it. That story and more coming up next in tonight's Quick Hits. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis vows to ban vaccine passports, and the Biden administration has a new excuse for the border crisis. Those stories coming up on tonight's Quick Hits. And let's start with Governor DeSantis, who's been rock-ribbed in standing up courageously to the woke mob, to the progressives in this country, keeping his state open and using reason in applying his coronavirus policies. And that continues with his challenge of these vaccine passports. Let's roll the tape. We are not uh, supporting doing any vaccine passports in the state of Florida. It's completely unacceptable for either the government or the private sector to impose upon you uh, the requirement that you show proof of vaccine to just simply be able to participate in normal society. You want the fox to guard the hen house? I mean, give me a break. I think this is something that has huge privacy implications. It is not necessary to do. 
Well, of course, you have to show a vaccine passport to operate like a normal human being in American society, but you have to show no form of ID to vote under the Democrat system. That's the world they want us to live in. But they also want us to live, and this is the most demoralizing thing maybe of all when you get behind the social wreckage, obviously the casualties and the economic destruction, so much of it self-inflicted as a consequence of our reaction to the coronavirus crisis. And that is that we are essentially going to be importing China's social credit system with American characteristics if we allow these vaccine passports to be rolled out across the country. So I commend Governor DeSantis for taking a stand on this. I hope that dozens of governors, I hope every governor around the country takes up this fight as well, just as they should be taking up the fight against big tech. So Governor DeSantis shows us the right way to handle a potential crisis. The Biden administration shows us an alternative way to handle a crisis with a new excuse when it comes to the southern border. Let's roll the tape. We have to understand that these trends are also seasonal. And the thing that we have to do most quickly is get humanitarian assistance, job training, education, feeding assistance um, because there's food insecurity throughout these countries. We need to provide options. The only thing that's seasonal about this border crisis is that it happened after Joe Biden was elected president because the world knew, everyone knew that his open borders policy would be a magnet for the erosion of our borders, the violation of our sovereignty, the undermining of the rule of law. And what I would say to the Biden administration is this, what about humanitarian assistance for the American people who have to deal with the consequences of your policies? Well, that's it for tonight's Hold the Line. This has been Ben Weingarten filling in for Buck Sexton. I want to thank Buck so much for the opportunity to fill his big shoes. I want to thank you for tuning in and spending the hour with us. Up next is the No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly. Have a great night.